Welcome to the Second Generation Women podcast. I'm Van Anne, a second generation Vietnamese Australian, on my journey away from being the busy primary school teacher into a slower, more present version of myself. This podcast is here to help you rediscover what it is you want and to begin letting go of cultural pressure from the outside world. Yes, you'll question your identity, your life decisions, and begin trusting yourself to fully live with intention and connection. I'm so excited to be your host and walk you through this journey. Let's get into the episode. Welcome back to another episode. Today, I've got a really special guest. She's a first-generation immigrant from Japan and the founder of Shapes and Sounds, which is the leading voice for Asian Australian mental health and well-being. Give a warm welcome to Asami. (laughs) All the way from Melbourne, right? Yeah. Oh, where are you based? Sydney. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Since I've started um, life coaching and focusing on second-generation women, I found your page and Shapes and Sounds, and I've been a huge fan. So I have your emails and I'm following your Instagram and everything. (laughs) Oh, my God. Thank you. That's awesome to hear. So it's amazing that you're on the podcast and I can't wait to talk to you about all the stuff you're doing. Yeah, same here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the knowledge that you're a first-generation immigrant from Japan. So tell us a bit more about that. Um, Well, I was born in Japan um, and then at the age of four, I moved here. So I'm first-gen, but um, I definitely spent the, the majority of my life here and Um, I grew up here. I guess I started school here in kindergarten. So I guess essentially in a similar time when other people are learning language as well. Um, So my, yeah, my um, experiences of immigration occurred very, very young. And then when I was in my like 20, I think, I went back to Japan and lived there for about three years and then came back to Melbourne. So all, most of my time has been in Melbourne, really. Yeah, you know, I've, I'm technically a first generation immigrant as well. Yeah, I wasn't born in Australia, but I, I always say on my Instagram and my podcast that I relate more to the second generation experience. Mm. So I kind of classify myself as in between. <laughs> so is that how you kind of refer to yourself in a way as well? Definitely. I think the the term diaspora really sits well with mm-hmm. me. And I would definitely say it's your formative years that make a really big difference in your life. So your childhood and your adolescence, they're, they're the years where your identity really forms and develops. So I can completely understand your experience too, that um, yes, technically you were born somewhere else overseas in Vietnam, um, oh, no, I was actually born in the Philippines. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. My parents were on their way to Australia. <laughs> yeah. I see. And in the Philippines. And then how old were you when you came here? I was about three to four months. Wow. So very, okay. yeah, very, yeah. <laughs> I've pretty much grown up here. I lived here. I don't know anything otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, similar. I, I guess it's a bit different, like the age of four, right? But still, I think it's your, what, your teenage years and your early adulthood that really shape who you are, I think. Definitely. And speaking about your childhood and teenage years, 
I'm curious to know what kind of cultural pressures did you experience growing up? Yeah, that's a great question, you know. Um, I think for me, a cultural pressure that I really faced was um, the pressure to assimilate quite quickly and adapt very quickly as well. My parents, both of them, spoke English when they moved to Australia. They already Mm. were fluent in English. So for them, I think quite different to other immigrant stories that um, work sort of day-to-day errands, activities, that came quite seamlessly as well. So for me, I think, yeah, I guess pressure is never something that's kind of verbally put on you, but just sort of (laughs) these nuances that you experience, right, in your life. And for me, I think just um, adapt, assimilate, but also um, understand different contexts. So if we're in Melbourne, it's like, okay, this is this is how you act, this is how you do things. And then back in Japan, there are so many cultural norms as well that you have to follow. But I never mm-hmm. grew up in Japan, so I don't really understand them. I just have to watch and follow. But I think that pressure to... Um, to be within the crowd, like belong in the crowd, both in Melbourne and in Tokyo or in Japan, um, I think that that did feel like pressure to me and that's something that I've carried for Mm. a long time too. Yeah, so how do you feel on a scale of 0 to 10, like Mm -hmm. in terms of belonging, Yeah. how do you feel in Japan and in Australia? Yeah, like which one do I feel more belonging in? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question and one which I have tackled (laughs) so many times, right? (laughs) But I would say if I go from a very purely physical, like my body, Mm. right, if I think about my body belonging somewhere, that is clearly Japan. So Firstly, like the water there is treated differently. My skin, my hair, everything just sits well, like clothes fit, everything, yes. right? <laughs> That's a huge thing. But even like um, Japan is a very spiritual land as well. So when I'm there, I feel, I gen- genuinely feel very, very grounded. And it's like I put my feet on the earth and it's like, all right, I'm connected, I'm here, Right. So there's that sense of belonging and there's that level of belonging, I should say. But here I feel like I really belong in Melbourne too, in in very small pockets of Melbourne, like the inner north and the arts culture and the creative scene here. And um, at the same time, I also feel like I belong within the diaspora culture and the conversation that's emerging here in the States um, and even in parts of Asia as well. So I think to answer your question, it's complicated. <laughs> none of them are a 10, but none of them are a zero as well. Mm-hmm. And in terms of belonging, I've done a lot of yoga in my life and or like physical practice. And that sense of belonging to your own body and feeling like a sense of being within your body and inhabited and embodied, that's where I really get my greatest sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. I love that you brought that up. It's kind of 
instead of trying to fit into a space, now that we can control our environment, right? Maybe we can try to make the space fit into our values and, you know, what's important to us. Yeah, great point. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear that. That was my dog scratching the door. <laughs> Mom, come. Yeah. So who are you talking to? No, we love seeing your dogs on uh, your dog on Instagram. It's <laughs> very cute, but yeah, boundaries, right? <laughs> Physical boundary of the door. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love hearing your cultural experiences and kind of bring that into what you do now. So mm-hmm. you're the founder of Shapes and Sounds which provides mental health services for hundreds of Asian Australians. And I'm curious to know what experience, what experiences led you to start Shapes and Sounds? Yeah, so definitely everything we've been talking about, like all of these early experiences, right? But I guess the key experience or situation that happened um, that led me to start Shapes and Sounds is I used to work in an acute and crisis service for um, in the context of youth mental health. So it was here that we would have people dropping into our service, probably in the most acute crisis in their lives. And um, I spent about five years in the service and I really started to notice that there were Every now and then an Asian client would come in and I'd be like, hey, <laughs> what are you doing? Um, and, I, and I guess like just from um, a personal sense, at times I felt really interested in, you know, in this person's story or this client's story and what's happening and what kind of supports are they getting. And I just really got this weird intu- intuitive sense that our Asian clients were slipping through the cracks in our service delivery, not Mm. just within our service, but across the whole youth public mental health sector. And um, I just remember so many times just just kind of mentioning this in meetings or to management, and the answers would always circle around, let's get more interpreters or let's get better translation of documents and posters in different languages for our walls. And then I didn't really have the language for it back then, but I'd be like, I feel like these kids are speaking English. Like many of them were born in Australia. Like I really don't think the language barrier is a problem. Um, and I spent a few years being like, huh, that's a bit weird. And, you know, when you don't have the language for something too, you can't quite explain what's going on. But you know deep down that something's not right. And it all kind of came to a head in 2019. We had an awful, awful time Um in that organization, like lots of changes happened. Lots of young people um, were in intense crisis. So trigger warning, a lot of suicide, um, lots of attempts of suicide and suicide occurred. And that led to burnout for me as a mental health practitioner. And through as I was exploring my burnout or dealing with my burnout, I really started to question like, what's going on for Asians? Like, why is this happening? You know, Um, why are people slipping through the cracks? And as I started to get into the literature and research, I learned that um, Asians or Asian diaspora in Western countries have the lowest engagement rate with mental health services. So out of everyone that accesses services, we make up only about two to 3% of those people. But once you're in acute or involuntary admission or suicide responses, then we make up about 8 to 10% of that demographic accessing those services. 
And I think that that discrepancy in the number really highlights how many people in our community are struggling in silence and that it's not that Asians are so resilient and so strong, which we are, but that, um, you know, people are struggling in silence and they're not getting the help that they need in a timely and appropriate manner. And it's not just about the stigma within our communities, but it has a lot more to do with the failings of the current mental health system here in Australia. So I started writing a blog, just like be being angry and writing things as you do. Um, and then thanks to social media, I think that um, that's that's such a fantastic way to connect with people and reach people. And um, I started to connect more with different Asian Australians in different spaces. And um, I was attending an Asian Australian leadership workshop series um, this is all before COVID, by the way. And then I met mm-hmm. Vianne, who is our head of impact, and her background is um, in management consultancy. So you could already see like that great mm-hmm. um, organizational psychology brain that she has um, really helped to create structure to the vision. And that's sort of the very, very early days of Shapes and Sounds. Um, and we actually worked remotely for a full like two years or I don't know, 18 months or something. Um, Was that at the beginning or was it like, was it just because of COVID? Yeah, it was, it was because of COVID. So I probably met V like February, (laughs) before (laughs) February, 2020, you know. That was perfect timing then. Right. Because then it all went downhill. Um, and then we became a company in December 2020. So then 21 was when we started delivering programs to the community. Wow, that's amazing how yeah. certain experiences just really shape us and then they, you know, add a sort of new pathway that we hadn't thought of before. Mm, yeah. And another one that um, I don't often talk about too, but something like maybe you'll resonate with, but um, around all of that happening, late 2019, I also went to New York as first time as an adult. And I just remember like ordering coffee everywhere I went. And I'd be like at Starbucks, just say. Um, and I'd be like, they, they're, they're always like, what's your name? And then I would always say Asami, A-S-A-M-I. And I always spell my name, <laughs> yeah. right? Like just always. It's like, it's like one word. Mm-hmm. Um, but then before I could spell my name, they'd be like, okay, next, you know, and I'd be like, wow, you don't need to know the spelling of my name. Like, it's not weird to you. Um, And it really just got me thinking about why do I spell my name all the time? Like, why, why am I, why do I other myself all the Mm -hmm. time when there's a different world that exists? Like, some parts of the states are, you know, 20 years ahead of us in terms of conversations like this. And that really Mm -hmm. got me thinking, like, oh, wow, there's a different way in which things can be. <laughs> um, and I think all of those kinds of experiences led to the the early days or the early ideas of shapes and sounds. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we do things so out of habit and it's so normal, we don't think about it. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, when you were saying that, I was, yeah, I was thinking back to when I used to introduce myself and I used yeah. to say my name extra slow. Really? Yeah. Hi, I'm Van Ann. <laughs> and then they'll be like, what? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, you know those people that say like their name and then they say um, like Lydia with an N, you know, like they always have to. Um, yeah, yeah, like how you spell it. They got to spell exactly. it out for you. Yeah. And then it's like, wow, that's exhausting for us, you know. Yeah, but I guess it comes from somewhere. Like we had yeah. these ex- early experiences where people were confused or it was just a hard hard time trying to communicate with them in the beginning and just made things awkward. So we we just know what to do to avoid it now. Exactly, to avoid that discomfort. And yeah. your name and my name, they're actually both phonetic. Like mm. it's just the spelling. <laughs> yeah, your name is much more phonetic than mine is. <laughs> I've got the extra H. (laughs) Oh, yeah, of course you do. Yeah. Yeah. But I think even on your website, right, you write pronounced as Ben and. I do. See, that's just just in (laughs) case people want to, like, I always want to pronounce people's names correctly. Yeah. I don't want to offend anyone. And that's also part of that, that need to make sure that everyone's okay, that everyone's comfortable, that there's no, like, awkward interactions. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. You're responsible for everyone's. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) That's one of the big topics that I talk about a lot on my Instagram and like coming up on the podcast as well. Yeah. Uh, Making sure that, yeah, you are the sole person who's in charge of everybody, which is so not the case. I know, right? Yeah. It's a lot to carry, hey? (laughs) (laughs) So now that you told us a bit bit about Shapes and Sounds and how it came about, I wonder Mm -hmm. what's your mission with Shapes and Sounds? Yeah. I think, like I said, um, we truly, truly believe the world can be a kinder, better, I don't want to use the word inclusive. I feel like that implies like there's a norm. So not inclusive, but maybe safer world for everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, as a part of that, I really feel like mental health is such a key ingredient because strong and stable mental health translates to good relationships, good and healthy relationships. So by improving people's mental health, you improve relationships, you improve dynamics at work, you improve the safety, the psychological safety of masses of people. And we just so happen to work within the context of Asian mental health because Asians are an underrepresented um, demographic when it comes to mental health conversations, both due to the stigma within our communities, but also just the cultural nuances that are lacking in psychology services or mental health services. Um, so basically, in a nutshell, our mission at Shapes and Sounds is to make it easy for Asians to engage in their mental health care. Mm-hmm. That's so important. And even just talking to my friends about mental health, it's just not something that comes naturally to us. Mm. Like our parents haven't talked about it. We don't really bring it up in conversations. I mean, now with our generation, we are exposed to a lot more and we know we have access to this these kind of services. But at the same time, we don't know exactly who to go to. Yeah. And I love how one of your values is humanness, just you know, being real and making sure that like when you talk to someone, you're not just getting like a quick response or like an automated, like copy and pasted response. So mm-hmm. I think like bringing that humanness to all of this, we all go through similar struggles, not exactly the same. And that's one of the things I love about like what you share on Instagram, because you share the real stuff. You're actually overcoming this too, and you're still on the journey. Like we haven't completely worked this out yet. 
but we're mm. all working on it together. Most definitely, yeah. We definitely lead by example, I guess, not mm-hmm. by like leading via our mental health expertise, although that's really important too. But I think humanness is a really key value for us because um, it counters that need for perfectionism that many of us in our community kind of um, struggle with or Mm -hmm. many hide behind even. Like the more um, perfect we are at our work, the more safe we feel. But what happens when you are imperfect, which we all are, um, how can you allow yourself to shine and to just be for who you are? That takes a lot, especially in a world that has never really valued you as well. So we take a lot of work to be human. I think V and I spent a lot of time just like chatting, you know, like who are we? And we do that within um, as much as we can within our team. There's a lot of chit-chat in our um, in our meetings and making sure that the humans are well or well enough, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, what's really well in this time. But um, and focusing, like we cannot be a mental health organisation and we're all burning out and we're all just like crumbling on the inside too. So we take a lot of care of the human as much as possible. And I'm probably the worst example at this. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm laughing because I know that I'm the worst example at this. <laughs> well, it's all like a work in progress. And exactly. I love that you brought up the the idea of connection. Like it's part of the humanness, part of when you get to know people and you get to know yourself, like that sort of connection is what brings people together. Mm. And that's kind of one of my values as well with um, kind of heart and just, you know, talking to people, getting to know people better rather than just, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Yeah. Rather than just purely transactional, right? But yeah. Yeah. And social connection is like a key indicator of good mental health too. So Mm. um, it's just so important, right? And and connection is hard when you've been hurt a lot in the past too, or you have relational trauma in your family or, um, you know, just amongst friendship groups as well or with partners. But um, we try as much as possible within our community to, to find, to create safe opportunities for connection with one another. Mm-hmm. And you started a mental health membership program mm-hmm. called the Shapes and Sounds Club. and. I looked through the the kind of overview and I saw you know, a topic for each month and I just wanted to know what are some of the biggest topics that you dive into? Just give us a little summary. Yeah, of course. Yeah, the Shapes and Sounds Club is that community that I was talking about where we really try to foster connection and we take more of a collectivist approach to mental health. So we, we open up conversations and um, the forum is heavily moderated by our therapists, but um, at the same time, people talk to one another. And it's really important that we see that we're not alone in our experiences, that mm-hmm. oftentimes people like you brought up at the start, we don't really feel a sense of belonging in lots of different spaces. So understanding that other people feel like that gives us a sense of belonging to a different culture too. Um, and in terms of the topics So we have something called the Essential Guide for Asian Australian Mental Health that we created right at the start of the Shapes and Sounds Club. And that's 
something that we created based upon our working experience as therapists, but also within our work with the Asian Australian community. And the three big themes that we highlighted that continually emerge for the Asian community here in Australia are one, um, stoicism or perseverance and grit. You know, that's just something that's so prominent in our lives. And um, in a healthy manner, it can lead to fantastic things, which many of us have achieved. But in a challenging way, it can really burn us out and it can really be oppressive, um, this need to just keep going all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's the first topic. Then there's internalized racism. We've, I feel like we've, our conversation has already touched on everything. <laughs> but, um, you know, internalized racism, all of these messages that we internalize growing up as Asian in Australia. Um, and these conversations haven't really been had in a big, um, in a, in a free and open way, I think, in the past. I would say things are changing now in terms of the media and greater representation. But that is definitely a huge theme that impacts our mental health. And lastly, a huge topic is intergenerational trauma. Like the, the war, the World War II, Vietnam War, everything is so recent. And if our parents didn't experience something themselves, our grandparents did. And that that is just so incredibly recent in our ancestry lines. And intergenerational trauma is so um, debilitating and painful. And I would say that us now in this modern day and age, um, we've our, our predecessors have had to survive and just make their way through, rebuild their lives. But now with this sense of safety and security and stability that's foundational already in our lives, mm -hmm. all of that trauma is coming to the surface for so many people. And um, it's it, it's really, really important to have those conversations, but in a very, very safe and contained manner um, rather than just kind of blur in the open because mm -hmm. they're difficult and they're triggering. Yeah, definitely. When I was in uni studying um, primary school teaching, I had to do an assignment where we had to like make a video capturing a story from our family. And my grandparents served in the Vietnam War. And I, you know, interviewed them over the phone because they're in Vietnam and they didn't want to talk about too much. Like it was, mm. it was kind of bringing things to the surface that they probably, you know, pushed down, didn't want to bring up and they hadn't thought about for a while. And so I didn't actually get much out of them for my uni assignment. And so I didn't do that well, but <laughs> yeah, but just wow. knowing their story and connecting to them on that level, for them, it's like, oh, you really want to get to know us, get to know the history of our family and what they've gone through. But at the mm. same time, there's only so much they want to share. Yeah, totally right. And I feel like that assignment in itself is, it's quite, um, it doesn't, it's not very inclusive actually, because it kind of assumes that people, people's grandparents are excited to tell, tell their kids about their lives, right? I guess it could have been any story. I just, I thought that was a big story that I wanted to capture for myself. Uh, okay, and, okay. So like a family, yeah. any family story. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and 
I think the year after I went back to Vietnam to visit them and I showed them the video. Yeah. I just had photos and I had some like some stock photos that because I couldn't find any. And they were all just like smiles, like, wow, she's doing, you know, this great work. But I don't know if deep down they were actually yeah, triggered by that. Mm. And that kind of brings up, yeah, these experiences that, that they've had were traumatic and it's kind of passed down through my parents as well when they had to migrate to Australia mm. and then onto us, even though we've pretty much grown up in Australia our whole lives. It's just things are slowly getting better, but there are things under the surface that have never been brought up before. Yeah, most definitely. And so recent, right? Mm. Like it wasn't in our lifetime that these things happened, but we still hear about it. We still, mm. I mean, I don't know if people listening, it might've happened during their lifetime, but I, I wasn't physically there, but in a way I kind of envisioned that I am because of all the stories I've heard, all the things that my grandparents, my parents have told me about their stories. Mm. And you know, our parents just love telling us about like, oh, when I was younger. <laughs> so all those stories that we've heard have been ingrained in us to mm. think a certain way or to behave a certain way. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, most definitely. And I think to add to that um, to that idea that actually as human beings, our nervous system and our ability to regulate and self-soothe ourselves comes directly from our primary caregivers, our parents right? Or whoever was there right at the very start of our lives. And nervous systems are very, very um, attuned. So the way in which you regulate yourself was taught to you by your parents. The way in which they manage their emotions or manage the arousal within their nervous system was physically taught to them by their parents. So if a generation is deeply affected by war or famine or poverty or natural disasters, then that fear, it's just imprinted into the next generation's nervous system. And it, it just kind of continues on and on. So we hear stories, but actually it is our physicality that knows. So when you say like, oh, I really feel like I was there, a part of your body completely is attuned to that experience because it's your nervous system and it is mm. the way in which your brain and your body operates. Yeah, that's so interesting. Mm, it's fascinating, right? I love psychology. <laughs> yeah. Another topic that I saw was perfectionism and you mentioned stoicism. Is that kind of similar? Um. I think they're related, aren't they? They're so interrelated, perfectionism and like perfectionism. But I also think perfectionism to me speaks a lot more about um, the fear of being imperfect, that unless I am excelling, I'm failing. There's no in between. Either I'm like 100% or I'm a complete and utter failure. And that that fear that lives within so many people um, about like perfecting tasks, perfecting like our work or achievement, I guess. Yeah. There's such a big focus on the outcome rather than the process because mm. um, for so long, I think when you are a racialized person, you only get um, 
it's it's only the result that people see and people care about and people comment on. So they don't see all of the nuances and the layers that you've had to go through before that to get to the result. So for me, making sure that result is perfect so no one can say anything bad about me because anything negative is like completely tied to racial trauma. Um, And so then that kind of like pushes me all the time for perfection and that all or nothing approach really. Mm -hmm. But I'm really learning about the process. I think that that's very important. It definitely is. Mm. I relate strongly to what you said as well and how there's like black and white, all or nothing. And I just had a memory as you were talking. My parents, when they looked at my school reports, they didn't really understand English. And I know like your parents could speak English and they were fluent, but my parents and a lot of my friends' parents, they still can't speak English that well. And when they looked at our school reports, the only things they looked at were like the numbers because they couldn't really understand anything else. And of course they saw us, you know, either studying or not studying and working hard, but what they really treasured was the result that showed if you were achieving or not. And I think now working in a school where a lot of parents don't speak English fluently as well, I see that happen to students in school now. Mm. where parents just kind of see, you know, because Australian grades, it goes from A to E, right? C is average. That's where you know, the benchmark is where you should be at grade. But when parents see a C, they just think that their kid's not doing so well. A means you're excelling, like you're amazing. C just means you're average. And it doesn't mean that your child is failing at school. That's such a good point about like the numbers or just say the letter that has a very clear grading system. Um, And if there are any language barriers, then you completely miss the nuances of just say a B. Um, It seems like, you, you know, the B report card could be like, it's evident that you really struggled with biology at the start of the term, but then you made some great progress um, throughout the term. Like when you miss that nuance, and all you can understand is the letter or the number, you're so right. Then that really perpetuates like then you have to have 100 or you have to have um, 99. Yeah, and you know the stereotype of if you don't get at least 80%, you failed. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so perfectionism is something that I've struggled with my whole life as well. I've really noticed this a couple of years ago when I thought about like, why am I burning out mm. so regularly? It's getting worse. Like when I started working full time, it was just like a, a cycle that I knew was coming. When I started life coaching, I realized perfectionism is such a key topic for me in my life and a lot of people that I've talked to as well. Mm. Um, and I know you've mentioned that you've had to overcome this and still working on this as well. What are some tips that you could give to help with this? Let me start by saying these are things that I remind myself constantly. So it's not like I'm great at this, but I try. I think <laughs> you don't have that... to be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't have to perfect this. <laughs> That's so true. No, I think, um, not I think, I know that it comes down to understanding that I myself, just as I am, just my flawed, um, messy self, that that's actually enough. And being okay with who I am, being comfortable in my own skin, being compassionate to myself, not like, oh, you're so bad at organizing your weekly schedule, but more like 
that's a really funny part of you. You know, like it seems like your week is chaos every week. Something's missing. And that's like a really funny thing about you, Asami. Um, and having that kind of sense of, of really trying to prioritize yourself, be okay with who you are. Self-acceptance is such a overused sort of word. I never want to ever say the word self-love. <laughs> but essentially, you know, if you want me to summarize, that's what I'm talking about. Like really understanding that I am enough. There's nothing for me to prove. Um, I'm doing the best that I can in a deeply flawed world. And I think that that is the antidote to perfectionism. Just there's nothing to prove, you know, a number is not going to make me feel better, but maybe it will for like a moment. But I think it's like that number doesn't really mean anything unless behind that, that person is being cared for and appreciated by myself. Mm -hmm. I love that too. That has changed my perspective of just myself. There's nothing to prove. And I heard something the other day saying there's nothing to hide. Mm, Like you don't have to prove yourself to be amazing because you already are. But on the other side of that, there's nothing to hide. There's nothing to be ashamed of. That's true. I'm like, oh, maybe there is. (laughs) (laughs) The funny thing is the part where you mentioned that like you laugh at yourself because you don't take yourself too seriously because one thing that I've noticed in myself when I was like going through high school and studying for the HSC, um, you have something equivalent, but it's different, um, is that I took myself too seriously. And the things that I was embarrassed about, it was a big deal Yeah, (laughs) because I couldn't laugh at myself. Yeah. You're so right, hey? Like even I think about um, like if I was wearing like not the most coolest clothes or something, then I would feel like so much shame around that rather than just like, oh, well, I'm still okay, (laughs) even if this isn't like the nicest thing. Yeah, and now I just wear like, flip-flops with socks out in the street I'm like yeah whatever (laughs) 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 no one's gonna see me anyway (laughs) yeah exactly no one cares anyway (laughs) when I was younger I couldn't really I mean I had a childhood but I took myself so seriously even as a kid Mm. like you know I'll, I'll be embarrassed if I did certain things or people would laugh at me if I did something wrong And so it kind of made me not want to do anything wrong. So no one would laugh at me. No one would make fun of me and I wouldn't get embarrassed. And my face used to go red. (laughs) Okay, if they see my face is red, they're going to know I'm embarrassed. (laughs) I don't want anyone to know. How did you stop your face going red? Like just by by making sure you never did anything wrong? (laughs) That was one thing. Another thing was makeup when I got older. Oh, wow. Like a bit yeah. of makeup, like foundation just covers everything, right? <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, like my ears would also go red. Yeah. So then you would know. cover I think your as ears. I, <laughs> yeah. But as I grew up, it just kind of went away. And maybe that's my confidence and like knowing that everything's going to be okay if people laugh at you. I just laugh at myself too. Yeah. That's awesome. Isn't that nice that you have that like physical cue as well? <laughs> and now I'm not so ashamed of it. So what's in store for Shapes and Sounds? What's in store, hey? Well, Mental Health Month is in October or is October. 
Um, so that is always a busy and exciting time for us. Last year, we ran something called a 30-day journaling challenge all through October throughout that month, which was so much fun within our closed forum. And this year, we're going to make a few changes to that, which I haven't announced to our members. So um, Can we stay tuned. <laughs> um, the sneak peek is that we want to reach more and more people. So we're going to open it up and um, make it really accessible to a lot more people than we had last year. So oh, that's I'd love to join. really exciting. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, and that's always fun, the 30-day challenge to journal and reflect about the intersection between your culture and your mental health. Um, so we will definitely keep you updated on that um, if you stay close to our Instagram, it just shapes and sounds. So I have mm. two final questions for you. Okay. How will you continue to live with intention and connection? Mm -hmm. And how will you continue to help others do the same? Great question. So for me, the way in which I live with intention and connection, intention and connection are that I always prioritize myself. I always have, which I think is really kind of rare and um, unusual for many people, but I, I have always prioritized myself. And I think that that is so important. And prioritizing myself doesn't look like being selfish, but it means that I ask myself, what do I need? What's working? What's not working? How can I do this differently? Or what do I need right now? What do I want right now? And continually asking myself those questions so that I can take care of myself, so that I feel really aligned to my own vision and what I want to pursue and chase after. Um, and so that I am not kind of um, getting in other people's way, I guess, like the people around me. Um, mm -hmm. I'm clear and I'm on my own path and um, prioritizing myself, but also taking care and responsibility for myself and my needs as well. That is probably the way in which I really stay close to my intention and in terms of how do I support others to do so kind of like what we've been talking about throughout the podcast I think that leading by example is really important rather than me leading from um, the perspective of a mental health expert you know because really I'm really just a human having a human experience just like everyone else and the way in which I contribute to the world is to share my reflections and to share my experiences and try to bring language to some of the things that we're all facing and hoping that helps people to feel less alone that they can relate to my experiences and to the Shapes and Sounds team's experiences um, and to foster more conversations that are authentic and allow people to be real yeah, I love all of that. So where can our listeners find you? Please find us on all socials, predominantly Instagram at Just Shapes and Sounds. So don't forget the just. And our website is just shapesandsounds.com. Um, and you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm really trying. On LinkedIn. I don't know why I, I love, found but... you on there actually the other day because I made a LinkedIn. <laughs> oh, amazing. Thank you. I think I followed yeah. you. I don't know okay. how to use LinkedIn yet, but it's I found you on there. So. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting platform, which I'm appreciating. And so if you're on LinkedIn, let's connect in a professional way. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming and having a chat with me. I am so grateful for this conversation. Thank you, Ben. And that was so much fun. Thanks for having me. 
It would mean so much to me if you were to follow the podcast on Spotify and give it a five-star rating. To do this, search the Second Generation Women podcast on the Spotify app and it should be right under the description. Thank you so much.